everybody. Welcome back to the Year in Five podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. I've had this podcast for over five years, and one of the goals over the years has been to talk about influencers as a form of modern celebrity. You know, I love to talk about bloggers and TikTokers and um, all things to do with the the influencer economy. And I think three or four years ago, I started a series called Under the Influencer, where I wanted to interview bloggers, business owners, various functions that involve influencing, because I think it's a really fascinating industry, and kind of lift the hood. And the past year or two, I haven't done as many because I found that bloggers are have a lot of anxiety about podcasts. And I've had more bloggers ghost on me than even was worth the effort. <laughs> and back when I was doing more of those interviews, this person was requested all the time. The point where I looked back in our DM history and we almost did it in 2019, but per my luck, I couldn't ever get her to respond or nail down a date. Her name is Caroline Calloway, and she is definitely one of the most gossiped about influencers on the internet, I think. Just in terms of the level of volume of of snark, of always trying to like figure out who she is and what she's about, and of kind of the constant feeding the public of content that is snark worthy to the point where the Caroline Calloway internet lore is a tangled web on the web that feels so hard to disentangle at this point when you're a little late to the game and trying to figure out who she is and what she's done. And the way this all happened, and I got her on the podcast this week, is because on last week's podcast, I was interviewing Stephanie McNeil, who used to be a writer at BuzzFeed, now is an editor at Glamour. I to prep for the interview with Stephanie, I went back to the first episode we did in 2020 to be like, oh, what were we talking about? What was the hot influencer goss? And a big point of conversation was Caroline Calloway. And I realized I hadn't really followed or thought about her in a minute and seen what she was up to. And uh, I went to her Instagram and realized that the book she had announced early 2020 called Scammer about the period of her life, predominantly 2019, when she got labeled as a scammer due to a few internet scandals we'll go through, she announced and took pre-orders for this book called Scammer. It never came out. It kept getting pushed and pushed and pushed. She took money for it. And even when she announced it was coming out this year, going through her Instagram, the date kept changing, the reasons why kept changing. And then I went to the pre-order site and the book is self-published, $65, comes with Italian marbled end papers, ribbons, I don't know, the whole thing. And I, I I was kind of like, is this a bit? Is she because one of the ways she's made money in recent years is by like, you know, selling face oil called literal snake oil or sending gift cards. She calls grift cards. She kind of co-opted this scammer moniker. Anyway, so I said on the podcast, like, is this a is this a scam? Like, is it coming out? Like, I mean, I can't help but be interested. And I mentioned it on, on Instagram. And I tagged her and I said, feel free to come on the podcast and tell, tell us if this is real, basically. And much to my surprise, she responded. And she sent me her phone number and she seemed down to come on the podcast. So um, while I waited to nail down a time, I kind of started to research and get back into Caroline's Internet lore. I wanted to do I wanted to do an under the influencer to kind of talking about her history and also the book. But at the point when I started prepping, I hadn't read it yet. And so if I'm honest, I went into this conversation at first think like I scheduled this interview thinking this will be kind of lighthearted. And I want to talk through some of her so-called scandals. I want to get to know her better as a person. 
Honestly, I just want to be like, Caroline, did you really pee in a teapot? There's so much here. But then I read the book. And at the beginning, I was riveted. I was like, oh, this is really entertaining. I, I, I didn't follow her back in her Cambridge days. I was interested in more background in her life, so on and so forth. And we scheduled the interview. And then I keep reading. And I get to a couple parts that, for me, crossed a line to the point where I lost interest in platforming it. And I think ultimately the content I wanted to cover, my tone and just my general, I don't know, the way I approached this interview uh, really changed once I read the book. And isn't the lighthearted fair I initially thought we would get into. But I want to backtrack a bit and give some context to this interview because very few people will have read the book given how it's being rolled out. And even if at the end, she says, if you order it like today, you'll get it like 47 days from now. So there are a couple of things you can do. There are a lot of press articles with direct quotes that might be helpful context. There's a very long Vanity Fair piece, which a lot of the book is in verbatim, but it's not in the context of being a quote. So I don't know if it was actually in the original book or, or not. I don't know. It's very confusing. There's Vanity Fair. There's Washington Post. There's Daily Beast. There's Rolling Stone. There are a lot of press pieces about the book because she sent out press copies. And also, if you want a good recap, Claire and Ashley from Celebrity Memoir Book Club, they were on this podcast last year. Uh, they did a recap of the book's contents. And I think are later coming out with a interview with her as well. So be sure to check that out for more detail about the book specifically. But in this episode, I will try to briefly give you some helpful context that I've revisited this week. This is a long form podcast, by the way. I do I'll like set it up with some background, then I'll do the interview. It's meant to keep you company, make you stay a while. I know this is not the snappiest interview, but I this one was tough for me to even do in a two hour time frame because there's a lot here. And I don't always like doing like deep dives about influencers that I I didn't follow closely in real time because it's kind of hard to piece it all together in retrospect. And I know there'll be a lot missing. And I, I just like the Yale plates. I, I hate when things are missing and they should not be. And I just know there's so many people that have followed her so closely, whether you're a super fan or super snark or anyone in between. And I apologize if I can't be as exhaustive as I'd like to be. Long story short, our, our story starts in like 2012. She buys 40,000 Instagram followers like bots and has admitted to it and starts. I believe she was at NYU at the time. She transfers to Cambridge and she starts writing these very long, whimsy captions about an American girl attending Cambridge, participating in this British high society and this world of academic elitism and the gowns and the galas and the garden parties and the gallivanting around Europe. She makes people in her life characters and the Instagram posts kind of connect and tell broader stories. And it was a creative way to use Instagram at the time that was mostly just a photos app. I gather no one was really paying attention at first. And that's when her friend Natalie was helping her with the captions who wrote the cut expose we'll go into later. That And then her following organically grew to like 300 some thousand by 2014, 800,000 by 2017. And in 2015, she was able to parlay this internet persona she had developed based on being this American girl at Cambridge. She's able to parlay it into a book deal that was worth a half million dollars with Flatiron Publishing. Natalie's expose said it was actually 375, but we've since learned the extra 125 was for the international rights. So it was a half a million total. With a book advance, you only get a portion of it up front, even though it's called an advance. And she got $100,000 of that that she blew through. In 2017, 
2018, she announces that she's not writing the book. She's backed out of the deal. She cannot sign copies of a memoir for the rest of her life that doesn't represent the real her. And the proposal that she wrote was a lie. I think at this point, people were just kind of like shocked, maybe at the level of, I don't know, the kind of the audacity and entitlement to be like, have this huge opportunity to get such a substantial deal based off of being an influencer and to just kind of blow it because of like creative differences, I guess. And I even as at the time, I remember hearing that story and I was not super aware of her. But it it just maybe made me mad from a jealousy standpoint of a chip on my shoulder of a person that wanted to be a writer, too, and would have killed. I'd still kill for an advance like that. Um, it's just a big opportunity in an industry that's really hard to break into. And the kind of uh, casual nature of being like, oh, this just this isn't what's right for me. It's not what's right for the art. I think kind of like blew people's minds. But that wasn't even that big of a deal relative to what happened after. So in 2019, no, sorry, 2018, we're in like schadenfreude america a word i previously only knew from like avenue q i think that's how you say it where we're delighting other people's misfortune predominantly influencers because people are so excited to see influencers not be who they say they are to do something stupid especially at this point it's a career that people just like aren't really understanding or taking seriously it's this is kind of like the the tummy tea apex i think i started with firefest two documentaries dropped on the same weekend uh, Billy McFarlane's exposed as this huge fraudster that scammed investors out of millions, that scammed people out of really expensive tickets to go to like Pablo Escobar's island in the Bahamas. And it was a totally disorganized disaster of an event. And very famously, there were photos posted of like styrofoam boxes with shitty cheese sandwiches and people had like paid thousands to be there. And so many influencers like blindly promoted it, I think, without knowing what it was. And I think the whole thing was just so embarrassing. And of course, we also have Anna Delvey, New York socialite and fake German heiress scam financial institutions out of $275,000 along with like hotels and other boutiques uh, to basically fund her lifestyle as this fake heiress and to make this, uh, I guess, I don't know, private art club or something. She's charged with grand larceny, convicted. She's already out of prison. She had a party re- like the, earlier this year that a lot of celebrities intended, like attended. And I saw a paparazzi photo of her like looking chic and taking out her trash the other day. Uh, she's an interesting one. I don't know how I feel about it. my my point is like there are different. There's such there the the scale like the the spectrum of of scamming is very different and varies from like misleading to criminal. And it's interesting that all these people get grouped together: Billy McFarlane, Anna Delvey, and then there's like Elizabeth Holmes, which is just even a crazy comparison because she's responsible for a failed blood testing startup that was valued at ten billion dollars in I think 2014. And then she was ultimately charged with running a multi-million dollar scheme to defraud investors and doctors and worse patients. She fucked with people's like healthcare information and and lives. Like she is just like a whole other level. So you start to see these people being placed in listicles and slideshows on the internet with Caroline Calloway because in late 2018, the same weekend that the Firefest doc, uh, documentaries dropped, there was this viral thread about a creativity workshop she was hosting that was honestly a little bit funny. And my point of entry to really digging more into her because she was, she sent 1200 Mason jars to her, her New York city, like studio apartment that didn't fit. And she didn't know what to do with and posted about it. And like the internet went wild mostly because they, one, I think particular journalist dug up that these creativity workshops weren't really what they seemed on the surface. Like she kind of over overpromised and under delivered and I think people were look in every scam, people are looking for like their symbol that can be easily memefied. And I think Caroline's sad cheese sandwich was these mason jars that just kind of became this iconic piece of Internet lore. 
And again, I don't think this was a crime. This was just it was just disorganized and a little in over her head. Yeah, it's not great to sell $165 tickets to events that you haven't planned, you haven't booked venues for. Worse that you try to move the city where they are after you sold the tickets, being like, take the train to New York, pay for lodging, et cetera. Like it was a cluster. Uh, but I think it captured the internet's attention because of the timing and our interest in scams. And also it was a, a workshop that was a kind of about nothing, you know, like friendship, growth strategy, flower crown orchids, whatever. As I told you last week, I've spent not that much less for like a lot of paint and sips in my day. Sometimes you just want something to do. I probably would have bought a group onto this workshop in 2012. Uh, if you were a fan or followers of follower of hers, like there's probably value. Like people do meet and greets. People do live shows. I do live shows. Like I, I think this event is kind of a, a thing that when I really looked back on it, I'm like, God, this is nowhere close to Elizabeth Holmes, Dan and Delvey to Billy McFarlane. Why is she showing up at these slideshows with them? I think it was just a weird uh, intersection of timing paired with kind of the easily ridiculed material for what the workshop was about and it was just a project product of like pretty bad disorganization and then continued follow through that mirrored what people had suspected i don't think there was like a really streamlined plan in place for refunds she resumed the workshops in 2019 and attendees were like yeah we sat on the floor and ate salad and instead of like the flower crowns or the mason jar gifts like they put a single flower in their hair and subsequently had to like give the flower back is what one reporter said. I don't know, you guys. But the reason she was doing that is because she had to pay back the advance of the book deal she backed out of. So there were the workshops and the book deal that was backed out of. And she was already being talked about a lot. And she just kind of had this really quirky, messy, chaotic apartment in New York. And she was just always doing things on the Internet that people were talking about. Kind of the piece de resistance when you think about her notoriety. Uh is this tell-all her ex-best friend Natalie wrote for The Cut in 2019. It was called I Was Caroline Calloway, I believe, and it claimed that she was Caroline's ghostwriter, that she edited and helped write the Instagram captions, that she co-wrote the schoolgirl proposal. It basically told the story of an, a very unreliable friend who would involve her in things that she wouldn't follow through with, that... She supported to make this book happen and then only for her to back out and not pay her for. She told a story about kind of her carelessness because she was left to roam the streets of Amsterdam all night when Caroline locked her out of an Airbnb, didn't really have enough regard for her to like check in or make sure she got home safe. The article, I think, was so interesting and was the most read article on the cut uh, of that entire year to me because it represented a toxic friendship dynamic where there's kind of an imbalance of perceived power. I think a lot of us have been in later. I tell Caroline, it reminded me of Darcy and Rachel from something borrowed, which, you know, she's a very literary gal. I'm sure she doesn't really understand my pop culture references, but that's what it reminded me of. Like, I think we've all kind of known somebody like a Caroline that kind of drew us in and fascinated us, whether they could pay for things or held a certain status or just being like fancy free and unbothered and kind of not relating to the way that they move through life so carelessly, you're kind of drawn to them, but then it like bites you in the ass because that carelessness translates to the, how they treat the people in their lives. And at the time I actually didn't even want to cover the story. And that was part of my hesitation even in 2019, because Natalie's tell all drops the same weekend that Caroline's father dies by suicide. And I felt really badly about the public pylon. i about her experiencing grief. I couldn't imagine what it was like to go through that. And it just didn't really feel like a fun pop culture story anymore as it felt like a really unfortunate situation where there was like a weaponizing and an exploitation of 
what I tell Caroline later, like moments shared in, in safe spaces. And it alarms me as a human being that friendships can turn into that. Since then, they've both weaponized and exploited details about their friendship back and forth. And Natalie Beach came out with a book this week called Adult Drama that Caroline is a part of. And I later asked Caroline if that had to do with when she chose to roll out her book, Scammer. So following this Natalie article, I think Caroline really co-ops the title of Scammer. Like I said earlier, she sells snake oil, like face oil. She calls snake oil gift cards. She calls grift cards. Um, She would sell like Matisse prints and boob prints, but sometimes I wouldn't send them. Like my friend ordered one of her prints and never got it, but then did get like an I'm sorry card, which I thought was funny. Um, And she had an OnlyFans account where she would do cerebral softcore porn. Uh, again, I think this, these were all efforts trying to... That, do you like how I just glossed over cerebral softcore porn? I think she talks about it in the interview. She was dressing up as like Elizabeth Bennett and like literary women, uh, but making them like slutty in her words to appeal to a certain type of OnlyFans customer that she calls like Princeton bros. I, something about softcore porn porn being dressed as like literary heroines from books i like spark noted in high school is very funny to me and it's interesting to me that there's a market for it because apparently there was because she was making like twenty thousand dollars a month doing it and like i think that's a big part of how she you know paid back her advance um but a lot of these things she would do on the side like selling the prints or furniture and things that she was selling off as like part of her father's estate didn't always send out the products like it just over time, every single business related transaction event or product she tried to put in the marketplace with her following. It became kind of an overpromise, under deliver, don't deliver at all thing where you just could not believe that she would finish anything she started. And a big part of this over the past couple of years, even though she's kind of dropped off from social media is the announcement of her book, Scammer. So she announced in 2020 that she's writing two books and you could pre-order one of them. Her first book, Scammer, was available to be ordered in advance of its spring 2020 release, whose date was chosen because it was a year from when she went viral as a scam. But then the dates for Scammer were pushed and excuses were made and it just not following through became her brand. And I think people, like me, assume Scammer was just another scam. Uh, and wasn't actually real, which brings me to last week when I saw these glowing reviews on her Instagram from Glamour UK and Rolling Stone and The Telegraph. I, there was a couple influencers I followed that had pre-ordered the book. And then I saw it was $65 and came with these papers and ribbon. I was like, oh, my gosh, is this kind of ha- is this like the creativity workshop of books where you're like in over your head trying to do something yourself and you're going to under deliver, not because you want to, but because you're, again, not really streamlining a process that needs a lot of uh, logistical interaction from experienced third parties to actually make smooth for the customer. When you're doing it yourself, it is as long as you're doing it yourself and you're giving something a date before it's ready, you're going to under deliver. And I was kind of like, ah, so, so I didn't know if it was like a scam or a bit or what was happening, if it would really come out. But she responded to my Instagram story and sent me a galley. And I kind of started prepping this interview going into wanting to talk about like kind of the fun pieces of, you know, her Internet notoriety, you know, painting her the hardwood floors of a place she doesn't own around piles of clothes instead of picking up those clothes. Like 
just so many like quirky, weird behaviors over time. It just kind of seemed like she was all over the place trying to get back on her feet to pay back this advance in various ways, leveraging her audience. And most of the time it didn't land because it was a lot of big ideas she would announce too soon and like very little know-how. That was kind of my read on the situation. But the, the book turned out to not be what I thought. It, I kind of changed my tune and wasn't even sure if I wanted to do this anymore because there were parts of it to me that were, um, they crossed a line in terms of, you know, I, I'm, it's fine. I don't care if you want to go into the, the depths of the darkness of your own life. Like, I think we should be able to have really hard conversations about hard things. I think the, you, it's important to talk about our own experiences with honesty and candor if that's what we want. But when you start to talk about other people's trauma, other people's pain, and it feels exploitative in a sense that it would outrage somebody to get press and sell books or that it would serve as a plot point more so than a productive conversation, that's where I get the pit in my stomach. That's where I feel gross. And what sucked about this process was I enjoyed reading a lot of the book, but there were a couple parts that just were so inappropriate to me it just completely took me out and made me not trust the narrator and i'm i I was even distracted going to this interview because i was like i just have to bring this up like why did you do this so long story short if you are triggered by conversations involving sexual assault rape suicide there are a lot of heavy topics discussed and again these are horrendous traumas that in the context of your own experiences are something you're absolutely entitled to share in a memoir there was just a part of it where she talks about her ex-friend Natalie, who wrote that cut expose. She talks about her, her sexual assault in a way that I think is incredibly inappropriate and crosses a line and that I felt was more of a, a quest for revenge than for a productive conversation in the book. The res- her response was kind of hard to follow and covering so many topics that we weren't going to get to like fully explore. And I kind of just had to say how I felt and we like moved on and I I don't know. It It's so different listening back versus like being in the conversation that you're trying to steer. And there are like 25 million things. I'm like, oh, my God, why didn't I stop right there? Why didn't I say this or that? But and I'm sure you'll feel that way as a listener. So just just a heads up. But if people are excited about this book and if you bought this book, I think you deserve to know that this is in this book, because a lot of the reviews I was seeing, someone mentioned it in passing, but some weren't mentioning this part at all. And I guess that's the review I'm giving is that If you're anything like me and are sensitive to these things, it was shocking for me to read and she'll give more context in the episode. Like I said, the book was entertaining, but my experience as a reader that I have to be honest about was just that there were some parts that felt cruel to me that were quite distracting. And I'm sorry if I didn't do right by asking the right questions or pushing back more when I should have. This is why they don't pay me the big bucks. (laughs) I had trouble navigating this conversation, if I'm honest. And I'm so interested to hear your feedback. You can find me on Instagram at Kate Kennedy at Be There in Five, F I V E. And I think the conversation, like, I started recording it once we got on the phone or whatever. um, And I was telling her, like, sorry if I get up to PM eight months pregnant. That's why we're like talking about eyeballs. So just like some context or whatever. Okay. So anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode of Under the Influencer with Caroline Calloway. Please allow me to thank my sponsors first, and we'll get into it. As I sit here editing back this episode in the depths of the night, I am rocking my pear eyewear. I just think this is such a clever company. They were on Shark Tank. You have a base frame of eyeglasses, minor prescription. And then if I want to go out in the sun in the morning, I can just pop on a topper that are sunglasses and be wearing my existing prescription glasses. Or if I want to change up my style or the color or do something tortoise or whatever, I just pop on a, a... frame topper 
and it completely changes the look of the eyeglasses without having to have multiple pair of glasses. The magnetic top frames are a genius product, and it's a really popular brand for a reason because you can get hundreds of budget-friendly frames and magnetic top frame styles to choose from starting at just $60, including prescription. And they have frames designed for men, women, and kids. The whole family can customize their look. If you want to match your outfit, support your team. They have so many sports teams. They have princesses. They have Disney. They have, I think this is really cute for kids who are still getting used to glasses. I got glasses when I was really young, and it was hard to pick one pair that would match all my fits. And I just think that this is a brilliant idea. And you can still get super lightweight and thin frames, um, even if you have a higher prescription. You can get progressive lenses and keep your eyes happy uh, from a long day staring at your laptop with blue light filtering lenses as well. And beyond helping you craft a style that's yours, Pear wants to do some good. And for every pair you buy, Pear provides glasses and vision care to a child in need. Express yourself wherever summer takes you with Pear Eyewear. Go to PearEyewear.com slash in 5 for 15% off your first pair. That's Pear, P-A-I-R, Eyewear.com slash in 5 now that school's out and it's summer, I know it can be difficult to keep your kids busy and challenged and stimulated. And a new advertiser we're working with called KiwiCo develops engaging hands-on projects and activities to spark a child's curiosity and creativity. And it's a really cool company that's a subscription box for your kids that offers multiple lines of fun and enriching projects designed to spark innovation and learning. They have over 2,000 projects in STEAM, science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. And you select a crate or take their quiz to find a match, pick a delivery plan. And like, I just think about being a kid and getting a, a crate every month with this really in-depth activity where I like don't even know that I'm learning something because it just looks fun. And I just think it's a brilliant idea that keeps kids busy for hours, which is something that as a soon-to-be new parent, I'm frankly interested in. I just sent my nephew who's in preschool, like a marble run and art easel. They have really cool like chemistry sets and fossil kits, a really cool water and sand sensory table for summer cake decorating. I don't know. I There's a really cool cooking kit as well. I just think this is a great way to get kids introduced to things that might spark their curiosity or creativity for fields they might want to go into at a young age and to feel competent by doing it themselves in a way that's genuinely fun. And it's just such a good idea for summer. And redefine play with KiwiCo. Right now, get 50% off your first month. Crates start at just $14 per month, plus free shipping on any crate line at KiwiCo.com, promo code be there in five. 50% off your first month plus free shipping at kiwico.com promo code be there in five kiwico.com promo code be there in five this week's so crazy it, it, it's so crazy I, it's, I mean the past two weeks honestly have been so crazy it's when the press started but i you know what's even crazier growing a human eyeball inside your abdomen growing two of them. That's some, that's some real sci-fi shit right there, if you ask me. And it's so, 3D printing a human. It's crazy. 3D printing a human, yes. And I'm – so as overworked as I feel, I also have mad respect for um for 3D printing a human. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I No, I say that too just in case I get up to pee. It's not because I'm not engaged. No, you know? Oh, my God. Sometimes I have to Stop. <laughs> if break. Anything, I'm going to try to do this whole interview sitting up um, like a normal, sane person. But if I have to go into lying on back mode at some point. Oh, here's my cat, by the way. <laughs> and he's such a good boy. But um, I feel like I've been alive for 3,000 years at this point. <laughs> Well, I mean, honestly, that's like, it's a good um, 
place to start. This is a perfect place. Okay. So many people think that I'm a demon spirit who's definitely been alive for like 3,000 years because I have a tar black soul if I have a soul at all. First of all, congratulations. This <laughs> book has been seven years in the making. So not 3,000, but honestly, like I reached out, I, the way we got connected is because I did an Instagram story and I went to your pre-order site and I was like, damn, $65, Italian marbled papers, <laughs> ribbons. And I was just like, what? And so and here's what I should clarify with starting this interview. I think I have a pretty top line knowledge. Like I'm not deep in Callaway core, like the in the internet. If I'm asking something like I, please know I'm not being antagonistic. I was kind of like, oh, is this kind of a meta thing? Like she's doing the most and charging a lot for this book and the date's been pushed out and pushed out and pushed out. Is this a performance art of people thinking they're being scammed by scammer? But I can confirm this book does exist. Honestly, for a while, I did not, I did nothing to dissuade people from that point of view because I, so this book, I announced it in This book accidentally turned into a scam for a little while there, uh, much longer than I would have liked. Ideally, you never want to um, have the public thinking that you're pulling off high, high level meta performance art. Ideally, you just sell the product. That was plan A, but sometimes you do have to go (laughs) with plan B. Um, I announced the book in January 2020. And back then I was in a very, very specific predicament, which was that I owed my publishers a hundred thousand dollars. I was a hundred thousand dollars in debt. And, uh, I think my greatest skill, like my greatest way to make money is as a writer, but because I was still under this contract, they owned the copyright of every single thing that had happened to me from birth up until the year 2016. And this was like Mm -hmm. January 1st of 2020. So I had like a little over two years to work with um, in terms of making a memoir. But um, luckily or unluckily enough, 2019 was truly an anus horribilis for me. I went viral as a scam the first time. My ex-best friend used that small bit of bad press to then sell a 5,000 word – I'm sorry – yeah, I think 5,000 word story to the cup for like $5,000. It was very long, very, I know $5,000 doesn't sound like a lot in the big scheme of things, but for freelance writing, like that's the big bucks, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. She sold this really compelling story about how I was even worse than the press was portraying me and she had all the inside dirt. And then two days after that story came out, my father's body was found. Um, he had killed himself. And so with Scammer, I sort of thought, oh, I'll make a book about how 2019, it was the worst year ever. And it was supposed to go to print March 15th, 2020. And all the readers at home know what's ha- what's going to happen next. Right, I right. Like the printers closed. Like that was a minor problem compared to the fact that like a book about how 2019 was like the worst year ever. like. That plot is going to be irrelevant for at least the next decade, if not like the rest of our lifetimes, you know, like it's just, yeah, it's just not a, a viable plot. So I stripped that book for parts. I made this essay that I put, I thought the world was ending. I didn't know if everyone would die. Maybe it was the apocalypse. I'm already pretty like 
depression clearly runs in the family. So like I already skew a little pessimistic to begin with. So I was like, hmm, I guess the world's over and we're all dying and nothing matters. So I stripped the book for parts, made an essay, put it on a, a website behind a paywall for I think like $5 a pop, $10 a pop, something like that. And I raised $50,000 for um, first responders who needed face masks. And then I was just sort of like shit out of luck because I didn't have a book to sell. I didn't want to use my original plot. Uh, I'd already accepted pre-orders and I just felt Mm. like the stupidest girl in the world because I had gone with self-publishing because I felt like it would be really triggering for me to take, um, I, I don't know if you know this part of the Caroline Calloway core, core lore, but, um, (laughs) My senior year of college, I sold a book for half a million dollars and high out of right. my mind on Adderall. I was going through a real amphetamine addiction, spent the $100,000 that they gave me as an advance. Thank God it's industry standard to only give 20% upfront. Otherwise, I would have been in half a million dollars right. worth of debt to my publishers. But um, mm-hmm. I spent that and I just felt so – it became like – One of my biggest regrets, how I handled getting out of that book deal, how I'd put myself in debt. So with Scammer, I was like, you know what? I have a big enough audience that at least for the first edition, I can self-publish. And this way, I'll never get even the most well-meaning email from the kindest of editors asking me, where's the pages? The pages are due. And then somehow I'd put myself- We'll just get thousands of DMs from- Yes, I know. And so I literally- And then, so I- actually ended up, as much as I tried to create a situation where I wouldn't have to, um, like, overcome one of my biggest regrets, biggest uh, shames, biggest triggers, I turned out I still had to work through that stuff in order to make this book. And it Mm -hmm. it took me another two years after the pandemic to – My mom also got cancer during the year of the pandemic, so I wasn't writing at all. And then it took me another two years, starting in 2021, to really, I mean, part of those two years, I can't be like, oh, I spent the whole time healing. Solid half of that was just fucking around in New York partying, but a a solid 50% of those two years was necessary healing and work. And then I finally got Mm -hmm. like, emotionally to a place where I could I, I paid off the $100,000 by selling topless photos on OnlyFans so then I could write about anything I wanted to and once that was paid off yeah I got to healing and then I got to work so what's interesting to me like a through line throughout the book this is kind of a pedantic categorization of people but there's like wow people and how people and you time and time again are kind of like the, oh wow like big ideas big hopes and dreams for how something's going to be executed. And the how never really seems to come into play until after the fact. And I said in my intro, like, I actually think the scammer moniker for you is misguided and unfair relative to people that are actual criminals that swindle people out of millions, if not billions. I mean, I've always really felt like that was an unfair thing to call you. And I think your co-opting of it is very clever. But when you were kind of dealing with that reputation... Did a part of you like worry that you wouldn't be able to fulfill on that since it didn't exist yet? Did you accept pre-orders to like fund it? Well, here's what I did, which was just very simple. I 
just gave anyone a refund who wanted one. Like I wasn't going to like hold okay. your money if you were uncomfortable with it. Um, so like for, when I talk about like, you know, putting myself in a real pickle, it's fully like psychological and emotional um, as well as a little bit financial for me because I thankfully hadn't spent that money because I wasn't so fucking high on Adderall um, this time around. But um, yeah, I just gave back people money. And if I like, sometimes I would do other projects to earn money that I had spent so that I could honor those refunds. And just to like give you a, a breakdown of the numbers. So like in those first three months from say like January until the world shut down in March, really, I guess that's like two months, two weeks. I sold mm -hmm. about 4,500 copies of pre-order for mm -hmm. Scammer. And over the next over the rest of 2020, throughout 2021, and then throughout 2022, and now into the first half of 2023, I would say a solid maybe 3250 if I had to guess, asked for their money back. And we gave every single one of those people a refund. And then in order, part of the reason I'm doing the luxury first editions, it's sort of, I have three reasons for it. One is I just like, if you look at some of the like visual art that I've made over the years, when I was doing like Matisse cutouts, I have always been absolutely rabid, uh, just, just feral little rat girly for hand marbled Italian paper. It's just a passion of mine. I love it. It's been a joy being able to spend 10, 20, 30, $40,000 on hand marbled Italian paper. I just like, it's like a dream come true, honestly, for me. And I really love the textuality of books. It matters to me where things fall on the page, like in terms of like ending a chapter or like I, within Scammer, I would try to contain certain stories so that they wouldn't uh, like that a paragraph wouldn't be orphaned on the next page. I know people in publishing don't put like a single line over, but it's very common to put a whole paragraph over. And I just, that stuff drives me wild. I went through so many fonts trying to pick the right one for this. You know, there's a frontispiece. I wanted the old Ex Libris book plate. And I wanted to do all of this, one, because I love it. Two, I thought it would be really fair, a really karmically good thing for me to do to make a book that was worth more than what the people who didn't ask for a refund paid for. Originally, the book was $25. So, and I, anyone who kept their refund, I'm not like, obviously, I'm not fucking asking them for another $40. That's crazy. Right. I'm, instead, I get to give them this like present, this, you know, like this free upgrade from me as a thank you present. And the third reason I'm making my book so expensive is purely business. I am very excited about having been a bookless writer, an infamously bookless writer <laughs> for so many years. I'm really, as much as my back hurts and I am working the hours of a, you know, Victorian child laborer. I mean, like no breaks. As soon as I wake up, just, just nonstop. I am, I'm really excited about working with books, but I do want a real publisher to take over someday. Like I'm not going to do this forever. I'll do this for at most. So now we're sort of back at 4,500 copies. I think we're closer to 5,000. I'll probably 
not absolutely hard stop this at 10,000, but I will, I might stop it at eight. I don't know. I'm going to see how I'm feeling after 4,000 books. And how many have you shipped out so far? Um, it's tough because we had 50 galleys for reporters. Then I did mm-hmm. another hundred for uh, like influencer gifting as part of the marketing. And then I think we're in the early hundreds for like orders that people bought so many years okay. ago. So people don't know when exactly they'll get it, but you're well, doing them an order I, yes, that they were I'm, ordered. I'm honoring it in chronological order. So I would say like maybe 100, 200 people of the first, yeah. um, first people who ordered. So I would say somewhere between – 250 to 350 books have been shipped out so far. Okay. I mean, what probably works for you in this instance, like, I mean, I, I, I'm a, I love a craft as much as the next gal. I love an Italian marble <laughs> paper, but you, it's like, I, I, I like your logic, but you're also making it so hard for yourself to do it all yourself. And it's kind of going to like self-fulfill delays when I think people really want to read the book, right? Yeah, they do. But I mean, I, I think it is important to, um, like, in order to get the maximum price from a traditional publisher, I think it's very important that I'm able to say, like, this is why my product is different. Like, this is 65 – this $65 collector's item art piece is not necessarily a product in competition with your $19.99 trade paperback. And in terms of shipping it out to people, I'm to be totally fucking honest – I've been explaining how this shipping process will go, that I can do about 50 to 100 books a day. I've hired three local artists in Sarasota so that we can get that number up to something closer, like maybe ideally like 200 books a day. Like that would be sick. But um, but even 100 books a day would be amazing. And the whole thing is through Shopify. So it's not like I need to like handwrite these addresses out or keep track like you know I I have a label printer it does all the shipping for me it prints it out I don't need to wait at the the post office and I know it's a lot of work but like I don't know I feel like I putting in so many hours making hand signing them hand numbering them gluing these papers in putting all the stickers on the packaging you know tying all the ribbons putting in the ex libris plates. It's, it is a lot of work, but like, it's what I, it's the product I want to make. It's exactly the product I want to make. So like, yeah, it it, it is harder than, you know, just taking money from a publisher and just not having to do this all myself. But like, I think my, my fans get it. Like they know the schedule and I feel a lot more secure in my own brand. When I first went viral as a scammer um, for those creativity workshops, like I had just like always trusted the news. And like when I suddenly saw myself being compared to like Billy McFarland, jail, Anna Delvey, jail, Elizabeth Holmes, jail. I was like expecting the FBI to like, to like smash down my door at any moment and take me to prison. Like I was, I just, was so rocked by that public shaming. And now I feel a lot more secure in just like 
Yeah. Maybe someone who didn't buy the book and has no intention of buying the book thinks the shipping schedule is going to take too long. Good for you. Go think that. This product's not for you. It never was for you. You were never going to buy it in the first place, you know? Like, you obviously are, like, a type A person who does not vibe with the Caroline Calloway brand. That's fine. Like, go go find someone you do vibe with. Yeah. The other question I had, too, was – so was it always going to come out around this time? It's pretty crazy, like, you and Natalie having books coming out the same week. And you did say in the book, like, I'll be damned or whatever if she puts out a book before me. Did you feel like you kind of needed to rush to get yours out first? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was really um, – I say also in the book, like, you know, the last gift that Natalie gave me was, like, the gift of competition. Like, I really – honestly, you know, I – I think that anger can be such a powerful tool if you can just apply it towards a goal, you know? Like I'm not saying all anger yeah. is productive. I'm literally that I grew up in a house that was like just fraught with rage outbursts from my father. Like I lived in fear of him being in one of his moods as my mom and I would call it. But Anger doesn't have to be like – it doesn't have to be all destructive. Sometimes anger can be constructive. And what really um, helped me honestly like work through my own like writer's paralysis was I saw the, um, the, the proposal that Natalie used to sell her book. Um, I saw the like – it's like a back-end document that only publishers – See, and and I love that you're in the middle of putting a book together. I want to hear more about that. But book proposal, <laughs> you know what that is. Um, yeah. And I saw her book proposal. And more so than the book ended up being, her book proposal really used me to sell the book. She talks about how she's going to expand the original essay, which she uh, – the original I was Carolyn Calloway essay, which she doesn't end up doing. And it was just so – I feel like, you know, when Natalie and I wrote together, I used to beg her to like let me put her name and stuff or to include her. And she never wanted it. And at the time, I chalked it up to it just being a personality difference. Like, you know, not everyone, Mm -hmm. not everyone wants what I want. And I have to respect that, you know? Um, But I, I've come to think in later years, just judging by her actions, that it was more of an insurance policy that if our book didn't work out, she could still make money from me. And like, there are just so many things that have made me feel used by her. Like she cut off contact with me, not when I was a menace during my addiction, but when I got out of my book deal, when she found out she'd no longer be getting 32000 She, when I was at my lowest, really pounced and struck and struck a deal with New York Magazine for that tell-all. Then when that came out and my father's body was found, she really, I mean, this is, people can read about this in the book, but like the last time we spoke was she wanted to talk the day I found out that he was dead. And she really, she was trying to get me to sign on to her Netflix deal because if I did, she would get a million dollars. And if I didn't, she would only get $100,000 because without my life rights, they can't use anything that resembles my life or the most importantly, the title of the essay itself, the words Caroline Calloway. And 
She called you the same day your yeah. dad was found and or and she knew about that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, at first, I thought the call was to talk about his death, and that's what we talked about at first. Um, but then she was like, so, I mean, this is in the book. It's like one of the main um, – Yeah, I read it in the book. It was just like <clears> – <throat> that part was like so, um, so like shocking and unfeeling and – yeah, it was um, crazy. She was- I felt really badly that I, I I can't I can't believe that timing with your father and that I don't even know how you got through that period of time. That's really kind of you to say. I honestly couldn't agree more. I look back and I'm like, oh, I don't know how you did it. I could not do- like have you ever worked like I don't know. I look back and I I'm in awe. But this is all to say that when I saw her then again 2 years later using my name to sell this book by seeing the back end of the proposal document. I was just like, fuck this. Like, is there like nothing that she will stop at to like, just use me? Like, it's just, there's just no fucking end to it. And so I was like, yeah, I'm going to put out a book first and I will not, I, I refuse to let myself be used like this. And that anger was really constructive instead of destructive. I have to say, like, even when I first read the article back in 2019 and, you know, reading your book the past couple of days, I think I'm the idea that two people who are incredibly close at one point, I'm freaked out by the idea of two people being very close that later, like, can monetize and weaponize the things that happened in safe spaces. And to think of you at that time feeling so... I don't know, close and secure and that being exploited, it, it, it kind of is such a mindfuck for me that that even can happen in a friendship. It makes me really sad, honestly. And I know she put all of that out there first. And I remember feeling that way when I first read it. And then reading yours back, it was like, I get the um, instinct to defend yourself and to provide clarifying points, but it kind of still like traps you in this back and forth that ultimately is like, a sad falling out of friends played out very publicly that will like probably never resolve itself because you see it fundamentally differently. Like, were you tempted to just completely move on from Natalie? Yeah, I am. I mean, I have two more books that are going to come out this year and I know this, this year, this year, it's okay. If you don't believe me, it's totally okay. If you don't believe me. Well, this was originally written as a trilogy. wasn't Yeah. Yeah. And it's not a normal trilogy, like, um, a trilogy of, uh, say like a fantasy series where it's linear and one book leads into the next leads into the next. I've always thought of this as the Instagram trilogy, which are like this, my juvenilia. Like I just always thought of this as like my young work scammer. I sort of see as like in a weird way is like a, uh, a rough, not a rough draft for it. And we were like, but something like a test, a test run combined with like an exorcism. Like there were some things that I wanted, Natalie, like won't be as big of a part as, and we were like, but there were just, there were some things that I wanted to write about that I wanted to exist in a book and that I didn't want to exist in some of my like later, more mature work. And I know Mm. people may look at this and think, oh my God, we're going to be tied to each other forever. I couldn't disagree more. I think Natalie is going to be tied to me forever. I think the second I publish a book that doesn't have the word Natalie in it, which by the way, 
these next two books that come out, it'll be pretty Natalie heavy. I think it will just make people feel more this way. But I, my PR publicity instincts tell me that if it, I just feel this is the right thing to do. I feel like I need to make mm-hmm. people sick of the Natalie story in order to create like a PR springboard so that the next thing I publish, which I also have a plan for the next book I'll publish after that, which does not include the word Natalie once. It's about a totally different thing that I keeping close to my chest because I have big PR plans for it. I think, you know, it's, it's a new chapter, but I, every single, you know, only a couple of the articles that have come out about scammer have included the words Natalie in the title or in the headline of the article. Every single thing that's come out about Natalie's book includes my first and last name and the title of my book. So like, I just don't think it's as, I think my brand's so much bigger. I think my lore is so much larger. I think people are so much, this sounds conceited to say, but I believe it's true. I think people are fundamentally more interested in me than her story. I mean, just looking at the way that she had to like use my name to sell the other stories in her books. Like I'm, I'm tying us together now, but I'm the only one who can leave. And it's okay if you disagree with me, but that's how I see it. Well, I I think it makes sense that your point of entry to being public facing was because of you and hers was because of you. Yeah. I mean, I've had lots of eras. I had the fairy tale era. I've had the scammer era. I have whatever new literary era is coming now that this book is out. And like Natalie just like even New York Magazine published an excerpt of her book and they used a photo of me for like the cover photo, you know, like I don't need to Mm -hmm. use anyone else's name or face to sell my book. Totally fair. And I actually want to get I have this problem where um, like what I love about books are typically not the most like salacious, outrageous things. I I like getting lost in the details. I've, and I want to talk to you about your fairy era because I, I since I wasn't familiar with Cambridge, yeah. Caroline, I I really really enjoyed that oh, part. I'm so glad. And I wanted to ask you about it, but I also okay. So per my point, to even move on from the, the Natalie piece, and I'm sure you've heard or will hear this, but I I'd be lying to you if I wasn't like I enjoyed so much of the book. Some of the Natalie parts, and you're entitled to write about your experience, felt disproportionately cruel. And it almost took me out of the book for a minute to be like, whoa. If I'm being honest, I struggled with the part about the sexual assault with um, you talking about your response to it. And and I guess I just kind of had this pit in my stomach of like, God, a sexual assault is such a thing that robs you of of your humanity and you're kind of retelling it and it's not your story and not offering her that same humanity in this moment and it felt like I don't know it felt disproportionate from the rest of the book and kind of stopped me in my tracks why did you choose to include that yeah thank you so much for such a thoughtful question because I really do want to speak on this because a lot of thought went into that you know when you talk when you were saying earlier that it was like sad for you that things that happened in like a safe space were like made public i a, a thing about natalie's um essay that really wounded me was that she erased my pills from like my Adderall addiction from the record so she made 
you know, the the worst, most manic things I ever did on drugs seemed like not like the core of who I am. Mm-hmm. And obviously it was really my dad killed himself with pills. Um two days later. So that was a complete mind fuck. But she also, I had never talked publicly about struggling with suicide and she introduced it in that essay as the punchline of a joke. Um, I, th- I think the line is something like, and I, I really made a big fuss about it on social media. So three weeks after the fact, New York magazine added a disclaimer, like, you know, Caroline says like, it, this is not why if the joke was something like Caroline said she would kill herself if I turn, if I wrote more pages without her, so I couldn't, like it was very flippant. And, um, anyways, so just, but no one obviously focused on that. That was a little thing in the essay that, that pierced my heart, but that, you know, the public obviously like didn't even notice. Um, but of everything I included in my book, the one thing I truly would have taken to the grave with me was that sexual assault story. If if Natalie had never, if Natalie had never dehumanized me again and again and again and again and again, I just would have, I just, you know, I think as a, a, not just a writer, but a memoirist, one of the most important moments in my life was um, to give your listeners some context. I write about how Natalie was uh, like sort of uh, really had this really unconsensual rough sex. And even as I was crying, I found myself getting wet as she like explicitly described her body in this sexual instance. And obviously that's so fucked up. I mean, like Tears were streaming down my face, even as my body was doing this like involuntary response. And like the exact moment I that I figured out I liked women was when I had my I was like, oh my God, maybe I'm just really into fucking like BDSM and this is how I'm discovering this about myself. And when I had my boyfriend reenact that sexual assault, like it wasn't the violence that I was attracted to. It was like Natalie's body. And I including that. I was very careful. I actually went back and read her cut essay to not include a single detail about her sexual assault that she had not already made part of the public record on her terms in her essay, in her New York Magazine essay. And there's actually like more to that story that I chose not to include because I just don't think it – I, th- I think that would have been cruel and unusual to make something part of the record that she hadn't already shared. And in terms of her, you know, just admitting on the record that I was turned on by that, I decided to include it because like right now I'm only dating women. I'm actually like really grappling with the idea of like whether or not maybe I'm like just a lesbian. Like I, I don't know. I'm figuring it out. Um, and that was really a pivotal moment for me. and. I would have taken that moment with me to the grave, but I just felt at the end of the day, I don't know Natalie anything. I don't know her my silence. I don't know her my kindness. She has she has hurt me a million times more than I could ever imagine hurting another person. 
and I just don't feel like I owe her anything anymore. So I included it, but I was very careful to use language that didn't say anything that she hadn't already said herself about it. So it sounds like it was partially included. It's in the cut essay. She talks about it. Right. So that's what I was curious if from your end, if. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Can I just say one? If there was a. I'm so sorry. Can I just add one thing? And in Scammer, I talk about being raped myself. So I I felt like I just felt like I could make an informed decision about how to handle that I I didn't feel like I was coming at it as a totally ignorant bystander. That makes sense. Sorry, that's the last thing I was going to say. I guess I'm unclear on your. It, so there's part of it where you f- feel like it was a part of your story in terms of you understanding your attraction to women, but then there's a part of it where it almost sounds revenge focused, like the kind of the exploitation of somebody else's sexual assault because I don't owe them anything because they said this about me, X, Y, Z. And while that's a choice you can make as a reader, that was tough to digest because I I understand if you want to responsibly explore how misogyny and, and patriarchy can impact arousal. Like I understand if you want to talk more in depth about your sexuality, but there are like ways you can do that without naming names and using somebody else's private circumstances. And I understand she used yours too, but I guess just as a reader, like you can write what you want. That was my response to it. And I just feel like, you know, you say you wrote the book because you, you don't want people to feel alone and blah, blah, blah. And I really felt that camaraderie throughout it. But in that moment, I felt very alone and isolated as a reader because it felt so cruel. I'm, well, I mean, sorry is not the right word I'm looking for. I just, I guess what I'm trying to express is that I I think that response is totally valid. And I think that you have every right to feel that way. And I do feel, I guess, sorry that like, as, cause my greatest intention as an author is to, I read because I want to feel less alone. And I write because I want others to feel less alone because of my sentences. And so I'm sorry that you felt alone in that moment. You know, I've also, I talked with a lot of my uh, friends who are bi, um, a lot. I've, two friends, but out of my 10 closest best friends, two are girls who are bi. So I'm like 20% (laughs) of all best friends. And they had really similar, like fucked up. I think being bi is, or at least being like decently enough attracted to men, like where it's not repulsive for you to hook up with them. Like, I think I might spend the rest of my life dating women. I like, I very much mean that. And because I'm femme presenting, like men like the way I present because of the stupid fucking patriarchy. And I think for a lot of bi girls who are femme presenting, it's so easy to just date men and to just never explore that chamber of your heart. And the way that you end up, it's a lot easier now with TikTok. And my God, my For You page is like bi queer lesbian girl heaven. And I find so much solace and community. I spend like hours watching just like um, TikToks because, well, some of, not all of them are gay related. I, I digress. What I'm trying to say is that I think a lot of femme presenting bi girls found their attraction, have their aha moment of attraction through women in 
anywhere from unconventional to truly fucked up ways. And I think it's a spectrum. Not everyone's experiences are different. Mine was obviously incredibly fucked up. And I'm sorry that I couldn't be there for you as an author in that moment, but hopefully I can be there for the bi girls who um, maybe carry a lot of shame for how they first realized that they were attracted to women. So that's how I feel about it. I went in to also, that reminds me. Um, but your feelings are so totally valid I, and I totally respect them. I just, you know, as more copies of this go out, I think that like to some people it will come across as a, as like a plot point or a solicitation for outrage. I just, I know you care a lot about your craft and I, the book is so thoughtful in so many ways. And that was a moment that was so distracting for me. I just had to work for it not to like eclipse the other content. And I don't know if other people will feel that way. Um, but I just Blog and Post you know. just did a dual review yesterday of me and Natalie's books side by side. And not only did they flat out call me the better writer, but they didn't mention the sexual assault part at all. And they called Scammer a masterpiece. So like for lots of people, it seems not to be a problem. Yeah, I noticed that I was disproportionately focused on this piece more so than press has yeah. been. And I think that just speaks to how every reader's experience is. So different. Is, and I totally respect um, your, So different. Yeah. So do I, am I correct in get, and what I glean is that you were not happy with this Vanity Fair reporter you spent a couple years with? You know, it's funny. I actually, Scammer went to print when I was like a little bit more upset with her, but we've made up and she's like one of my best friends and we still talk every day. She kind of implied that she made an offhanded comment about the, you and Natalie's dynamic being like a lesbian gothic that you co-opted it. And then like she made it sound like you infused that narrative in the back end to reframe the book against that comment she made. Is Was that a fair thing for her no, to say? No, I think I mean, I say this in the book the last time I mentioned the Vanity Fair journalist. And that's actually one of the things I was most upset with about her article is that I think there's some things that she just like the last time I mentioned her is some line like, you know, um she thinks I don't have boundaries and I think she's like a, a dear mentor. So I guess in that sense, we're both right about me. Um, but there are some things about me that we still like vehemently disagree on. And I really hate that she like implied that, you know, I was trying to like, I don't know, manipulate the reader by like queer baiting or manipulate her by like trying to like mold my personality to like fit her personality. Honestly, I was just like, I started realizing I was bi during the pandemic and I've been reevaluating a lot, not just Natalie, a lot of my female friendships in the past years, thinking about just trying to better understand myself. And when she called it a lesbian gothic, I really just thought, oh man, that makes so much sense. Like I really, I see exactly what you mean. Like that, you're so right. And I just felt like I was like, Something I love about my relationship with the Jan Vanity Fair journalist is that sometimes I think she really does get me, or at least in that moment, I thought she did. I was like, wow, you're teaching me about myself. Meanwhile, she's in her head thinking that I'm doing that to like manipulate her. But yeah, no, I don't think that's fair at all. And I promise you that it was not to try to um, just like co-opt her worldview into mine. It was really that I just felt like she was showing me a part of myself that I was already um, thinking about constantly and trying to understand. Gotcha. Yeah. I just, I, that article was like, it, the t it was tonally really interesting. So prior to the book, 
Did people know that you forged your transcript to get into Cambridge the third time you applied? Nope. Which I, does I, open I, you up to like, okay, if you're not a scammer, like that is cheating though. I know. I know. Exactly. And if I want to be taken seriously by like the literate academia, like it's not really a great idea to shoot myself in the foot of the best like right. pedigree, the best academic pedigree that I've going for me. Like, what does that mean? On merit? I only got like, well, I mean, you could say like I did all the coursework. I did pass Cambridge. Like I was able to do it. But like, you could also make an argument that I only like got into a high school level of education. Like not, it's not what's best for me at all. It's what's best for the art. And I just really felt creatively that it was just such a powerful thing to include in the book. And, you know, the story of lying on my application in Cambridge over in England, it's gone absolutely viral. There's been so much press about it and not good press oh, like really? by the book. Like, I mean, like Daily Mail writing like three different versions of like, Gatsby of Cambridge lied on application. Nothing about the book. Like, I, I don't want people to think that I did it as like a PR publicity stunt. Trust me, I'm way smarter than that. I would never be so stupid as to think that that would be good PR for me. I, I appreciated the honesty because what you, what you didn't do was try to, like, you didn't try to dispel the rumors and the reputation by overcorrecting and acting like I'm you're perfect completely and I've never done anything innocent. wrong. Right. Because it, reading through it, there were some things that I wrote down that kind of interested me in that they were like, not, not scammer adjacent, but they're like, give enough for people to run with for your character, but they're not necessarily criminal. Like you saying, um, I was the worst intern at the Met. My boss would be like, can you make these spreadsheets today? And I'd be like, Did, do you mean spend the next six hours writing long form narrative stories about myself? <laughs> instead of making the grades, you form the transcript. Instead of writing the book, you push it off. Instead of paying rent, you just didn't. And I think that this is an interesting thing for me to read because I, I think part of what makes me fascinated by you is like a pretty consistent through line of comfortably feeling like the rules don't apply. Is that fair to say? Like to have a job, to have an internship and just to be like, eh, I'm not going to do the work or to have to pay rent and have a contractual agreement. Just to be like, eh, I'm not going to pay it. I don't think that's something a lot of people relate to in terms of having the audacity to push their own agenda over like an obligation or an agreement where you would normally cooperate. And those details to me were really fascinating. Yes, I. You know, I. I feel a lot of defensiveness coming up in myself hearing you say that. And I can't tell if it's valid or not, because I know for a fact that at one point in my life, especially in my early 20s, I truly thought that. Like I would straight up think to myself, the rules do not apply to me. I think a lot but, of young people uh, do. That's but, a maturity thing. Yeah. To be honest, in the past, like, I mean, so far I've paid back. So I owe 40, 000, owed $40,000 in back rent. I've paid back 25 grand of it so far and I'll have it all paid off to your, by the to end your of the landlord summer. of the West Village apartment. My landlord of the West Village. In Who terms sued of the, you, like, right? Yeah, he did. Um, it's a long story. I, there was this poet who was going to live there and she 
we had this agreement that like she I wouldn't take like a secure I wouldn't take a need a guarantor because her husband is like a felon like he went to like federal prison so like and she just didn't have any guarantors but she would like she would pay rent and she would pay for the cleaning because I left New York off of the tail end of 12 days of the most debaucherous final days of Rome sort of parties that you can imagine. Um, and I just trashed the place and it would, would have been nice if she could have paid rent and cleaned it, but she sort of threw me under the bus and put all these photos of this messy apartment online. Um, cause it's, you know, great for engagement. It's a good story. Like the, the influencer in me sees the allure and she's very Instagram centered. And, um, the landlord saw it and they immediately figured out that I was illegally subletting. And then, yeah, they sued me. So she ended up screwing both of us over in the end. Um, but yeah, so they sued and I had to pay it back, but I didn't have them. What I'm trying to say is that like, I think in recent years, I do want to note the defensiveness that I feel, which usually when you are really secure in an opinion about yourself, you don't feel the need to defend anything. So I think the most honest thing I can say is what I'm about to say after first just taking note of the feeling of defensiveness that popped up. But I really feel like I started to fall away from that feeling of the rules don't apply to me. You know, like I... I did pay back all 100000 to my publishers. I'm in the middle of, I'm over halfway of paying back my landlords. The thing about the Met, honestly, I did do work there. I mean, I was eventually fired for just actually being the worst intern and doing that. But at least I did a couple months worth of spreadsheets. Like first couple months, like I was, I don't be confused by the punchline of that sentence. Is what I'm trying to say. Like, you know, I definitely went for the joke there instead of like, really digging into my time at the Met. But I think that what I have really suffered with in the past couple of years, ever since I went viral as a scammer, you know, I, when I cleaned out my dad's house, I inherited a shit ton of stuff from him. And Mm -hmm. I lived in a studio apartment. And obviously a lesson we learned from the mason jars is only so much stuff can fit in one human studio apartment. And I had what I called a digital yard sale from my apartment in the West Village. And I was very sloppy about sending the items that people paid for out on time. Like to this day, like I, before these books came out, I had to do like a a month of asking people on my Instagram stories, like, is there anything you ever ordered that didn't arrive? Like my customer service was very shit. And I also made that choice to live luxury, luxuriously instead of paying rent. And I feel that it was less a thing if the rules do not apply to me, then people already think I'm a scammer. What are they going to do? Call me a scammer? Like what, what happens? I don't pay rent and they say I'm messy and a scammer. Oh no. Like in a weird way, I felt like I wanted to get my money's worth. Maybe that's not the right uh, euphemism to use, but I just felt like I was already in such a bad spot reputation wise. I might as well, I might as well enjoy the perks, which is that like, there's no need to hold myself to a higher standard because even if I did, people wouldn't believe me anyways. Support for today's episode comes from Jenny Kane. I was just strolling down Armitage in Chicago. Did you know there's a Jenny Kane store? 
it is just it's a California brand through and through that just has the braziest vibes. And I just wish I could refresh my entire wardrobe with their pieces. Their summer summer staples make getting dressed easier. Think minimalist, effortless, but refined. They have flowy dresses, lightweight cotton cardigans, and elevated versions of everyday basics, not to mention the most incredible home essentials, too. Um, timeless furniture pieces, cozy throws, a perf- literally perfectly curated decor, and amazing candles. You have a must candle I have in my entryway that's everything to me that I just want to establish the essence of my house if you walk in. I also wear a pair of their slides literally every day, and the cotton co- cocoon cardigan is currently getting me through summer because it fits me, and their cove dress is very maternity-friendly, I might mention also. <laughs> It is a really intentionally designed, beautiful clothes that will stand the test of time and kind of serve as a uniform. And they have an incredible rewards program where you can earn up to 10% back with every purchase and joining is completely free. Find your forever pieces at JennyKane.com. Our listeners get 15% off your first order when you use code be there in five at checkout. That's 15% off your first order at J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E.com. Promo code be there in five. Let getting dressed be one last thing to worry about. What I worry about is when I have a weird mole or have some other issue that I convince myself is happening to me and I'm dying. And that's why I absolutely love ZocDoc and literally use it all the time. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient reviewed, take your insurance, are available when you need them and treat almost every condition under the sun. I need to stop going on the Internet and going on TikTok and typing in symptoms. Uh, It's just so much easier to talk to an expert. And, you know, as a millennial who's afraid of the phone. I like not having to call, verify my insurance, wait for them to call me back, get an appointment. And it's just great to find quality doctors on ZocDoc that take your insurance, see when they have availability. And beyond that, read reviews. All I care about in this life are reviews. I don't know why I'd spend a tight 40 trying to find the best Italian sub near me and not care about the reviews of my medical providers. I find this to be incredibly convenient and helpful because there's nothing more de-energizing and frustrating to me than finding a doctor who doesn't have like good bedside manner, for example, which is one of the categories that people rate in, which I really appreciate getting to know. And you can choose from thousands of patient-reviewed doctors and specialists, browse doctor profiles, upload and verify your insurance information, and get the care you need with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com slash be there in five and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash be there in five. ZocDoc.com slash be there in five. I think that what was interesting to me especially like the beginning part of your book it seems like you were born with a a fascination and fixation on like academic elitism does that come did that come from your dad and your aunts and uncles that were also at ivy's like can, can you place like why that has so much meaning to you and why that's something that was so essential to your self worth you like blindly chased it totally um two two things one i I was also born with just an overwhelming desire to write about my life. Um, And I just, the artist in me, and I know this sounds insane to other people, but like, honestly, this is the truest fucking thing I could say in response to this question. The artist in me just wanted the stories of my life to take place in certain backdrops, palaces of Europe, ivory towers, gothic lecture halls. Like this is just what, this is the siren song that called to my heart. And in terms of like why specifically, like you could say like why, I don't know, Martha's Vineyard or like why European palaces, but why elite universities was part of that siren song. 
I think it really comes down to the fact that, you know, my father was an agoraphobic bookish recluse who lived in a hoarder house and killed himself there. He was a very difficult man to love, but he was also like a luminously bright child genius. He got into Exeter, skipped a grade, then got into Harvard, early decision, skipped another grade, graduated Harvard at like age 20 or 19 or something stupid early like that. And his, um, his smarts and the way that his smarts were like um, traditionally celebrated in the American educational system. He came from like farmers from Nebraska and Appalachian, like log cabin people in North Carolina. So it's not like his father before. He was first at the family, first in the family at Exeter, first in the family at Harvard. And I think um, his, not just his intellect, which was fierce and magnificent and honestly a little bit terrifying the way he could just like recall facts um, and just speak ancient Greek and Latin fluently, even though he hadn't studied them in 40 years. Um, It just really was the easiest part about him to love. And I love the way, like the thing that was easiest about him to love was his intellect and the easiest thing about him to be proud of was his degrees. So I think But he was also a very difficult man to connect with. I think he was – it's so tough because, you know, you you don't want to diagnose people. I'm not a doctor, but I also, like, struggle to try to explain my father to people who never met him um, without using – without groping for, like, the language of diagnostics. Like, I think maybe he was somewhere on the spectrum. Like, he was just – you could ask him a question and he'd wait a full minute of silence before he responded. Like, that's just crazy interpersonal skills like that's crazy interpersonal social mm-hmm. skills right so he was like very hard to connect with so i think i sought connection with him in those ways that makes sense there were times when i couldn't figure out if you um it, okay you had you said it stung me more and more that elliot had never heard of zadie smith banksy reiner Hegg, etc that Elliot thought Monet was a French spelling of Monet, which made me a lol, and had the same Bob Dylan biography on his bedside table as the first night he pretended to come for him. Um, after a half a year of pretending to be the glamorous, upbeat socialite, I was not. I was less and less impressed by a nice boy who didn't know how to navigate an international airport without his parents. That to me was like, oh, this is kind of Dan Humphrey energy. Oh, from <laughs> like, Elliot or from me? from you like it's kind of this moment where i think that there are parts of it you really like and want to be a part of but that was a moment of separation for you where you're like i pretended to operate within these circles but there are parts of me that are different and you almost taking like ownership in this moment of like you being more proud of the person you are and the interests you have than the affiliations yes i'm I'm definitely uh blair waldorf's son jenny humphrey rising um Dan Humphrey Moon. I know. I was like, so uh, one of my questions, I was like, when it comes to like self-appointed regular people who are bookish and find themselves on the cusp of high society without fully participating in it, are you more of a Rory Gilmore or a Dan Humphrey? Because I kept thinking about those two people. You know, I'm I'm a Dan Humphrey who wishes that I were a Rory Gilmore is the honest answer. Not like, I'm too, I'm too conniving to be Rory, you know? Mm, there well i guess that's what i was trying to figure out like because there were times when it seemed like 
you kind of move through this world seamlessly. And even I think when you part of your issue with your first book that you didn't want to write because it wasn't you was that Natalie had said people hate the rich and long form prose. Make yourself the plucky underdog, which you didn't feel was you. But there were moments at the beginning where it did kind of feel like you were the plucky underdog who could afford the basic barrier to entry. But you were amongst, I think you said, you know, princes from Ghana and heiresses, you know, like it, it was you were able to participate in a world that has endless echelons of status. So did you yourself feel like a bit of an outsider at the time? Yeah. And I'm glad that came through in the book because I think one of the major themes is that fascinated me in terms of like uh, the quote I use as like the opener to the whole book that I think it's called, God, I think it's called an epithet and no, it's not epigraph. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as the epigraph, as the epigraph for the whole book is, see, this is why I can't be a Rory Gilmore. Rory would know that. She would never call it an epithet. She would know the difference. <laughs> the epigraph that I use is, we are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful about what we pretend to be. It's a Kurt Vonnegut quote from a novel he published in 1962 called Mother Night. And I really wanted it. I'm so glad that that came through in the beginning part and then sort of faded away because that's exactly how I felt. And I wanted to, I really wanted the transformation, you know, by the time I'm, you know, the Ghanaian princes that you're citing and me feeling out of place come from the Exeter chapters. And one of the final chapters, I see my ex-boyfriend from Exeter again at the Yale Club in New York City. And suddenly, like, I know more about this world than he does, this boy who was raised in it. Um, and I, I just find that very, I'm, I've thought a lot about the idea of like, to what extent can we become the characters that we write our, for ourselves? That was one of the striking things to me that I was trying to think through was like, it's kind of fascinating that even as a, a child, it sounds like long before it was a TikTok trend, you've all, you've very much always viewed yourself as the main character. <laughs> you, yeah, you did. <laughs> you move through life like as a character and you think about your future art based on what's happening in real time in a way that it was very fascinating to me. Like I almost, there's this one quote that like, okay, about lying to get into Cambridge. You said, perhaps you think I'd feel guilty about lying on my Cambridge application, but I don't. I think I made the right choice then just as I am making the right choice writing about my lies now. It's not about what's best for the texture of my day-to-day -day happiness. It's about what's best for the art. Yeah. And I, I, I'm so glad that you read that sentence because I would have tried to respond to this by honestly like paraphrasing myself that exact line because I fully believe it. I mean, what if Cambridge takes my degree away? What if there is a huge outcry about the Natalie sexual assault scene? Like I could really, what if, what if Andy fucking sues me because I didn't fucking change his name because I thought it made a more honest, raw book. It's, it's, it's tough to grapple with the fact that like art shouldn't be censored by morality, but like people should be and people make art. So it's, it's a tough thing to try to square all those things and have them um, make sense. But I, whether what other people see as moral or um, I don't know, what, whatever sort of impact there is on the texture of my day-to-day -day happiness. I, above all else, I would rather be unhappy, but make a, 
better art. Hmm. And I'm not even casting a judgment on that statement. It was more so like, and this is what books do. That made me pause and have like a moment of philosophical <laughs> introspection of like, I think to me, an artist's struggle, an artist's struggle or my struggle is the endless search for the texture of my day-to-day happiness. And the art is made in that, in navigating that deficit. And like, I want to be day-to-day happy. So it's kind of like it, where your vantage point is. So I think it was interesting talking about yourself when you were younger, kind of viewing the, the scenery of how you would create your art going forward. And it impacted your decisions. You were so laser focused on what you had imagined for yourself. You had to work backward to make it happen instead yeah, like of having engineer the story. Totally. Yeah. So like, you know, some people's lives are about kind of creating themselves. You worked backward from a def- destination to, yeah, kind of manufacture the art in a certain way, which is like a different approach. And I just thought it was a really interesting thing to think through of how we make these goals and expectations for ourselves when we're young and then we're tethered to them and how much you went through in trying to reach those goals and still are with, I mean, that's why I said, congrats. I mean, this is a big deal that your book finally came out. It's a big deal when you got into Exeter, when you got into Cambridge, like it, it was interesting reading the art that was the story of a person that wanted this to be their art, but it yes. came at such a great personal expense for you time and time again to make it happen in yes. a way that I think most people would have pivoted. Yes. I'm so glad those themes came through in the book. That's exactly what I want people to. I'm not sure if there's a question here, if you're just. Yeah, I, and no, I, I just wanted to share to my observations. No, I'm, yeah, I'm not I, a very good interviewer. I, I, no, I love. <laughs> yes. If you were like, if I were, if I could give you a, a grade for reading comprehension, immediate A, immediate A. Like, I am so fascinated by the, the, like, the many layers of a story within a story within a story and, and how you write, you know, a story about a story within a story. Yeah. And, ah, I totally agree. I think I'm like, on, part of me thinks like, how crazy can you ever be if you are aware of the craziness? You know, like, isn't true madness not knowing that you're mad? Um, but I think I'm fucking sick in the head. I think I'm absolutely batshit insane. So <laughs> I, I totally well, agree. It's crazy. And I, and I even, don't know why I'm like this, but I just, I just am. The quote about, um, um, it girls, I could not tell if it was like earnest or tongue in cheek, or it was almost like a, a uh, Carrie Bradshaw asked thing people would put on their away messages. He said, I wanted to be an it girl. It, it girls are startups and startups need funding. A bank would never have loaned me $40,000 to party, but my misery of landlords did. Yeah. I assume that's you making a joke. You know, it's not. I mean it. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. It's true. I mean it. I really, listen, here's the thing though. If we're going to be honest, I did not need 40 grand to party. I could have done the like cultural. So I, I don't, are you in New York right now? Where are you? Chicago. I used to live in New York. Okay. Amazing. There was this, did you, have you heard of Dime Square? Okay. Yes, I had heard of it, but it wasn't, um, as like ubiquitous outside of the Northeast, at least in my ether, I I didn't know a ton about it or hear about it a lot in a way that you kind of gave it a level of cultural significance. I didn't know it had. 
Yes. And I don't think everyone needs to know about it. The point, and maybe I should add a sentence about this and like a second edition of Scammer, is that New York has always been like the trickle down white hot center of American culture. Like things that you don't realize um, are coming out of New York still find their way to you no matter where you are in the country. Um, and same for Chicago in certain ways and also LA, especially when it comes to like Hollywood stuff. But for art and books, I would say New York is number one place that's creating that trickle down effect through the country. And you may not have heard of Dime Square, but I think, and you may disagree with me, but I believe that many people, even if it doesn't include you, thought of me as really, really terrible and laughable and a sad sack of a joke in 2019. But by moving to Dime Square and really aligning myself with this um, like lunar, a cultural lunar eclipse where people were suddenly thinking canceled, controversial figures were just the coolest of the cool. I really think that that did wonders to take my name away from being a sad sack of a joke like it was in 2019 and much closer to being like an ironic anti-hero. And I, regardless of whether you heard of Dime Square, I do feel like lots of people who never heard of it did, even if they didn't consciously see the change in their perception of me and the, the cultural perception of me at large, I think that that was felt nationally. I certainly saw it from my end in the way that like I was treated in the headlines. Like I, but the thing is I didn't need 40 grand to party. I could have done it in three months. Instead, I spent nine there. Like this, the other six months were totally gratuitous and not the wisest business investment. Um, but like, yeah, going there and realigning myself as an it girl, which, you know, I mean, just look at the cut in 2019. They published me as like the worst person ever. And then just a few months ago in their like it girl issue in 2023, they put me on a lineup next to like fucking Emily Ratajkowski and Julia Fox. Like the results on my end were worth it. But I also don't think that I was the most economical or physically responsible about getting those results. I think I could have done it with with more than 20, but less than 40. Instead, I got $40,000 worth of debt is my honest answer. Like, I on, honestly how I feel. Well, I appreciate the honesty. That was probably the most uh, Anna Delvian thing that you did and just in terms of like unconventional ways to essentially get venture capital for the social capital you wanted to acquire in the absence of a tangible product. And I think that Anna Delvey is a, an example of a person who we started out as voyeurs being like, oh, this is so fucked up. What a monster. And now people are buying her art and she's out of jail and the paparazzi are shooting her, taking her trash out. She kind of got the anti-hero edit. Totally, totally. And I do you think she'd be getting that same anti-hero edit if she were had gone straight from jail to Sarasota, Florida without making a pit stop in New York first to realign that brand? I don't think so. It's not known as being a trickle down center of art and culture and right. <laughs> right, right, right. That's <laughs> so what I'm trying to make the point of. So yeah, I do think it was necessary and to go there and realign the brand, but I also think I overdid it. I love a I love a flowery sentence as much as the next gal. Like and I thought I I had fun reading a lot of your sentences. 
I have to say, this is one of the ones that I've read 12 times and I was like, wait, what? He said, Virginia in the spring and summertime is lush the way a rainforest with a British accent might be all foxes and humidity and dove coos and ferns. I love that sentence. That's honestly one of my top. It, it's a cool it's sentence. one of my top 10 sentences in the book. <laughs> the way a rainforest with a British I know. accent Genius. might be. Genius. I love, I, I, yeah. It made me laugh. Did you not like that because sentence? It's I totally think... fine if you didn't. I love it. No. No, no, it's not about liking it or not. I, I, my point is, I think the way you write and construct sentences is really interesting. And normally, I was following every beat, but I just think that that's. Um, I was trying to figure out how if my experience in Virginia mirrored that analogy. I think that is all. I mean, I like. Don't you think Virginia in the summer? It's like so lush. It's green, 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 green. Even like that late summer period. And there's something sort of almost um, just the amount of ferns and like and historical sites. There are actually like not that many historical sites. And in Virginia, the play or sorry, in Virginia, in Falls Church or like the DC suburbs where I was, the like in the nicer suburbs, there were a lot of historical places, but in Falls Church, there are only a few. And mainly when you drive through the streets, like the beauty that you see from a car from a car window on your way to school in the morning, it's for me was always the nature. And it was just the beautiful trees and seeing a fox run across in the morning or did you have those sounding dove yes actually now that now i actually do know what you're talking about and that brings me back so much so yeah i just i love that sentence i think it nailed it but it's okay if you didn't like it no okay i thought i didn't like it i just thought it was such a funny way to describe virginia and i like i like learning how people's minds work i like when people are able to articulate the way they visualize something i just thought that was like a really Fun oh, way to put thank it. You. That's so um, sweet of you. One thing I was so interested about at the beginning of your no, book. What's your book about? I don't know why what's this... your book about though? And then we'll do the Oh, it's called <laughs> I sorry, I'm just like trying to get through so many notes. Um it's called One in a Millennial. It's like an essay book about like the female millennial zeitgeist because my podcast is very like pop culture related. Love. Comes out in January. Oh my god, exciting. If I send you a mason jar, yeah. I fully expect a copy of the book in return. It, I'm sure it's what could be better for me than a pop culture millennial zeitgeist book? Yes, I hope you like it. A lot of it is about how um, my scope of interest and pop culture references and like, quote unquote, art is kind of of the mass culture persuasion uh-huh. that people really trivialized and made me feel silly like for liking a lot pleasures. of my life and kind of taking, yes, like taking ownership of like, you know, this is why I was always like, I find academic people a bit intimidating because like I wasn't reading poetry like by the river cam. I was like seeing Katy Perry part of me 3D. Like that's how I spent my time. Like I just, I never had super intellectual interests. And so a lot of it's kind of me um, just like arguing for meaning in what you like and not being like ashamed of it. I love that. I think that that book will make the world, especially for women, a better place. Uh, (laughs) Tall order. I don't know. I just, it's kind of a fun millennial manifesto because I think we're kind of a malign generation too and I yeah I think that one of the things that, speaking of the mason jars I think that was my point of entry to learning about you because that was, was funny so I mean funny. as you said like so um but also a piece of that that I didn't pick up on at the time didn't it like get traction because Jonah Hill retweeted it and then like quickly deleted yes. it yes it did that's so and, random no, and do you know what he retweeted 
he retweeted the um so the mason jar thing first of all i still feel to this day like the media stole my joke like i was making all these jokes about it on my instagram and then the media like zoomed out and was like haha this dumb fool and all her mason jars like i felt felt like it was a golden comedy bit was ripped from my white knuckled hands but um Jonah Hill retweeted the original thread that went viral was, so I'd planned my creativity workshops all over Instagram stories. Like I hadn't, this was fresh out of 18 months of sobriety. I wasn't ready to write about Adderall on my grid yet. I I wasn't really ready to come back to Instagram because it was really daunting. All that was on my grid was my Cambridge fairy tale posts. I didn't know where to start. So I really planned these creativity workshops because I, wanted to like tell stories in person to like my top fans, like my most dedicated fans, sort of like workshop new material the way a stand-up comedian does, like just see what I'm comfortable telling, how I feel, how it lands, do all of that, but not have it permanently online and like drink wine and eat salad and cookies together and like give them goodie bags full of inside jokes and like sit on the floor together and like maybe do some crafts and cry a little. And saying all of that in the title just didn't sound as pithy as Creativity <laughs> Workshop, which is why I called it that. Right. And um, these events changed so much over the planning of them. As you can imagine, I had a lot of wow ideas without without thinking how I would do them. So some things that I thought we could do just weren't like financially viable or literally humanly impossible. It, there was a range of how crazy I was in my planning for this. But As always, I offered everyone refunds if they didn't like how the events were shaping up. I honored anyone who wanted a refund, refunded their ticket. Only like two people changed their mind when they saw how the events were changing. And then this uh, like Reddit snarker from Scotland put together this, in all fairness to her, incredibly compelling Twitter thread where she took screenshots of promises that I'd made on my Instagram stories that later changed that I later made stories being like, we're not doing this. This is what we're doing instead. She took those original promises and made a thread where she just put them side by side with like photos of the day of and like those promises not being fulfilled and was like, look at this scammer. And Jonah Hill retweeted that thread and then like three hours later and retweeted it. And to this day, I haven't. I, have, I need answers. I need answers, Jonah. If you're listening to this podcast, These celebrities trolling like blog snark is like hilarious to me. Um, that is so because without that, it maybe would not have gained such mainstream traction. I think about that a lot. <laughs> what a weird sliding like, doors like, moment that hinges on a tweet. Jonah Hill like changed the course of my life forever. Like Natalie never would have written her essay. Like. <laughs> That's so that's such a crazy origin story. Yeah, it really is. Um Yeah, I think that the creativity workshop, and I've like defended you on my podcast before, because in-person events, meetups, workshops, classes. I mean, everyone these days is a coach who coaches coaches on how to co- make coaching so businesses like and true. Yes. <laughs> everything people people monetize their audiences in different ways. And a lot of these things have a lot of hiccups. I don't know. I like I perform at live shows. I charge people like you know, if I was DIYing it, it would probably be a total clusterfuck. But it, but I think your intentions were there. And I don't think you were going out of your way to scam people. I just think you got in over your head. And I think that the timing of it, like with the, didn't it, didn't that story break the same weekend as the two Firefest yep. docs? It's my like, first uh, creativity workshop was either like the day or the day after 
or two days after both of those documentaries dropped. So the the title, This Influencer is a One Woman Fire Festival, got used around the world in many languages. That's okay. There's a that's a fascinating thing in pop culture. The past few years is like where there's smoke, it's not always fire festival. Like the Revolve Fest, the transportation was bad. People were like fire fest. I'm like, no, this is a logistical issue. Like I I think we're very um, excitable with like the whole scammer thing, and people really. I think the story was also so funny that there was so much interest in it because of the mason jars and because it was like, you know, an event that by design was kind of girlish and unserious and people just like love to shit on stuff like you that. Know what I'm sending out and um, as part of my PR gifting for influencers and reporters, I'm sending them all a felted dogwood inside a tiny mason jar. And the note that I'm writing everyone, unless they're like a personal friend and I have something specific I want to say to them, is just, I hope you enjoy this prose even more than this mason jar. Love that for PR. And also the last part of the book, I just want to make sure we touch on, because I don't think people knew this. I didn't know this. So Lena Dunham owns your life rights? Yeah. She wrote a script about them. She wrote a script. So that- I should say, Lena Dunham doesn't, the correct language for this is Lena doesn't own my life rights. I think the studio owns that. I think she options the life rights so that she can make a script and then that script is finished. Which is so so after the cut article came out, if do I understand this timeline correctly, you fly to LA, get with an agent, and you're basically meeting with different people's teams about how to make this story into TV or a movie. Yes. So the timeline goes two days after the article drops, dad's body found. Later that night, Natalie and I speak on the phone. She tries, she basically says, I'll forgive you and I'll be your friend again. Um, Sorry about your dad, but I'll forgive you and be your friend again if you sign on to this Ryan Murphy deal that could get me. She would get $1 million. And she was offering me $15,000 to sign this deal um, for Ryan Murphy. And do you know what's so crazy? A true testament to how wild grief is, is that I heard that, this conversation, I was there. And I thought to myself, this is kind of a great deal. I could really use 15 grand and a friend right now. Like I had just lost this source of like deep love that I thought would always be in my life. And I found a lot of relief and solace in thinking, you know, like, here's this source of love that I thought would be gone for the rest of my life, that I thought was lost. Like, maybe at the same time that, like, life gives you tragedy, it also gives you love from the most unexpected places. And wouldn't that be lovely? And don't I feel so guilty for, like, being just a nightmare during my addiction years? Wouldn't that absolution of forgiveness mean so much? And I also had no idea how much money she was getting. She made it. She did not tell you the million. She did not. I found that out later through like agent gossip. Um, And she also didn't tell me that if I didn't sign, she would only get a hundred thousand. None of that was, she was, she, so she used your friendship as a pawn in a very vulnerable time. Yes. And the exact way she phrased it was, how are you doing with money? If we were going to be friends again, I'd love to help you with money. Would $15,000 make a difference in your life? Like that was the exact wording of the conversation. And I was like, I just had my, like, this is 48 hours out of the now the cut piece. Like, I didn't know how I'd ever 
people didn't even believe that I was like mentally coherent enough to even like tell my own life story. You know, like I didn't even know how I'd ever, I was still in debt to my publishers at this time. Like my life just felt very fucking bleak. And I told my manager what the deal that Natalie had proposed. And it was him who flipped the fuck out, like curse words, yelling. And I still wasn't getting it. I was like, I don't know. Sort of sounds like a great deal. Like you, you or me, you'd realize like how much I need this friendship right now. Like that love, that forgiveness, like you remember that's with the $15,000. Like I was trying to like pitch him on it. And he luckily, um, is familiar with uh, like the AA program that I went through for addiction. I didn't do the AA program. I did like one-on-one therapy three times a week for 18 months where the therapy did like AA informed one-on-one counseling. So like I did Mm -hmm. the steps, like I made amends to Natalie and he very smartly utilized the language of AA to be like one day at a time. Let's just not sign this one day at a time. And during that time, I went up to Harvard for um, a Harvard Lampoon party. Um, And although I ostensibly went to Harvard because I was very sad and wanted to do uppers and a castle in Cambridge, and that was the nearest one, um, an unintended consequence of that trip was that I really, more so than his funeral, more so than anything I did during that time period, I really, I went back to my dad's old dorms. I really reconnected with the part of him that I've always found so easy to love. And it wasn't until I reached that degree of, I was still in so much pain, but it it wasn't until like I lessened the grief to like a, a manageable degree that I was able to even like think clearly or like want to live my life again. Like I sort of felt at the time, like, I don't want my life anymore. Natalie can have it. Like, and I'll, Mm. and I'll have Natalie and $15,000. Like, you know, and so I'm horrified by how vulnerable you were on that day and the audacity to try to make a business deal with you. Yeah, it was, it, it took me, it, it took me really it took me a week to figure it out. And once I did, I jumped into action, like literally got on a plane to LA the same day I gave the eulogy at my father's funeral and I hit the ground running and it was really an uphill battle. Well, first I did the Red Scare show in New York, which I don't think it's the best podcast I've ever done, particularly because I was blackout drunk. I was so nervous. I was so stressed. I was so sad. It was just... I was under so much pressure, but I did it. And the point of doing it was to make New York Twitter talk so that LA Twitter would listen. And after I did that live show, the meeting started coming in. Immediately, I got an agent at UTA who told us the back end facts of Natalie's deal. We started meeting with production companies, but it was really tough because a lot of people, Mindy Kaling's company, actually, Kaling, I think it is, I had once like brandished her book in like inches from Natalie's face being like, she's so amazing. You have to read this. And and Natalie is like a little snooty when it comes to authors, which is strange because like, I really like, I love a a good castle, but I have absolutely no shame when it comes to liking what I like, which is what really Mm -hmm. resonated with me about your book idea. Um, So I was like, you got to read this. And she's like, no, like, you know, she's another actress with a memoir, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. 
And then Mindy Kaling didn't want to meet with me because she didn't think that I'd have anything to offer to the story of my life. And it was just like, it was so hard. But Lena Dunham was so amazing, is so amazing. I love her. She's The book is dedicated to her. In fact, you know, a copy I haven't sent out because I have some other presents I want to put together in it is her... She's so excited. I'm so excited to send her her copy and hopefully get moving with the script. But um, is yeah, it still that, in the works? Yes, it's still in the works. In fact, we're this week, there have been some very important phone calls. And I think there'll be some news. Or, you know what? The old Caroline can't come to the phone right now. But if she could, she would probably say there'll be some news soon about it. I'm not it, teasing honestly, things anymore. But but honestly, but- <laughs> I don't know. Honestly, I don't know when the news will break to, to fucking variety or deadline Hollywood or whatever makes those announcements. I don't know. So would you have a creative hand in that project? You know, shockingly, it would be much smaller than you would think. Yeah, I, that's like, what I, I gather. Like, which is I crazy with to, like life rights. It's like, yeah, yeah, can we have your life and then run with it? <laughs> Although, do you know something that's crazy about the Vanity Fair piece is that it made Netflix kill Natalie's pro- like project. So she's no longer doing one. Or at least why? Because they just and oh how the turntables, they felt like without the name Caroline Calloway, there wasn't a project there. My fear with that story in Hollywood that it was already kind of flattened to in popular culture was it, it almost had very like I think people projected onto you and Natalie, like, are you a Caroline or a Natalie? Like kind of oversimplifying the circumstances. I don't think she necessarily wrote it that way. But it almost like I think the relatable part as a reader, it was almost like the something borrowed dichotomy of Darcy and Rachel, like the kind of unbothered, fun, lovable party girl that you're almost like she's so unbothered. You're like suspicious of her and you want there to be nefarious intentions and you endlessly search for them. And I think that like that kind of, I don't know, struck something with people of wanting more dirt on an influencer who did kind of seem like that fun and fancy free unbothered person. Trust me, Natalie absolutely intended to write it that way. In fact, the proposal that we wrote together, which, you know, industry document, only publishers saw it. I wrote my Cambridge captions alone. Um, In that document, we had flat out discussed. So I have another best friend who I didn't include by name at all on Scammer, Mm -hmm. who's very much... She's very beautiful, very privileged. And we actually put her by name, photos of her in the proposal because Natalie taught me how to set up. You know, she says people hate the rich and long form pros. Make yourself the plucky underdog. And she very much. um, It was very strange watching her weaponize the same writing techniques that she'd once taught me in order to make myself seem more relatable in comparison to like the beautiful swans gliding all around me. And um, I absolutely, knowing her, like having loved her, no, she absolutely did that intentionally in the story. Like she literally, she made me seem like this bougie bitch obsessed with like Ivy schools. Her parents worked for Yale. Her little sister was at Brown. I went to her mansion in New Haven, Connecticut. Like my house, my hoarder house where I grew up could have fit inside our house like almost two times over. Like she, she was like, she is a writing Nepo baby. Like she, her aunt is editor in chief at O Magazine. She got her first job through her family connections. Like I had to make the Caroline Calloway brand 
out of thin fucking air and then hire myself to run it. Like that's how I got my first writing job. And I'm not saying that I'm not privileged. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just, I just think it's so important to, to be mindful of how Natalie like lied by omission and made herself seem mousier, more unpopular. I mean, she was, she was voted captain of the women's varsity soccer team at NYU. Like that's a leadership position voted on by your peers. Like she's charismatic. She's a natural leader. She's a killer. Like she's, these are things I liked about her. And she really, um, did a very intentional job of hiding those parts of herself in order to make me seem like, in order to make me seem like the one who had it all that the reader shouldn't root for. What's so, it's so interesting, this whole thing, because you literally met at a creative nonfiction masterclass. Yeah. Learn tactics for how to write creative nonfiction. Yeah. You both know as writers that you, whether you call it by line by omission or strategically selecting details, there is a way that you paint the picture and positioning you want to through your words. And you both did that very well. And, but when something's about you, you're going to harp on the semantics. But like, yeah, like you both are writers and she wrote from a really specific angle. You wrote from a really specific angle. They're accurate to your perception of the story you wanted to tell, but not necessarily to reality. And that must just be like this. It's like a maddening back and forth. And it's such an interesting outcome of what seems to have started as a very competitive relationship based on writing. And still years later, in the absence of friendship, is a competitive relationship based on writing. Yeah, I am. That's definitely the chapter that we're in right now. The okay, I'll let you go, but um, I wanted to. I liked at the end how you said the last talking about like the last five years I've been a scammer. I hope that the chapter that follows the publication of this book will be more human, landing somewhere in between those two extremes, neither of which I am. I'm not a fairy tale, but I'm not a criminal either. I'm a writer. Maybe now that I have a book, people will finally believe me. And I love that for you. That was a really satisfying (laughs) point to end on, kind of exploring all these people you have been while you were just trying to be the one thing you wanted to be in the process of actually doing the one thing you wanted. There were a lot of um, sub-themes of this I thought were very, very clever and enjoyable. Thank you. That means a lot. I'm so happy that Scammer is finally out in the world and that I get to talk to people who have read it. So if you order today, how and where do you order? You can own this book is available nowhere books are sold. If you go into a place <laughs> and they're selling books, that's probably a clear indication that they are not selling Scammer. No, that's a joke. Scammer's not in any stores, whether it's a hardware store, or grocery store, or bookstore. But um, but if you go to carolinecalloway.com and if you want a beautiful first edition, honestly, your order will probably get to you around if you order right now. So we have a backlog of 4,000 orders, 4,500, maybe 4,700. I mean, nearing 5,000 orders to fulfill in chronological order. 50 books a day. Hopefully we'll get that up to ideally 200, but maybe 100. So that's like, you know, 40 days, realistically. For, okay. uh, sorry, 47 days. From okay. Is the turnaround time? Is the turnaround time from when you order it. In fact, do you have when I, plans to make an ebook or an audiobook or anything? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I want to do two audiobooks, one where I just read the book and one where I do sort of a director's cut where I just like 
riff on like little lines that I really like or funny things that happened while I was writing it or little details about the stories that I didn't fit, wasn't able to fit in Scammer because it's only 158 pages and I wanted to keep it short. Well, thank you for your time. I know you're swamped with fulfilling orders. Speaking of orders, I have another hundred books to send out to the sweet dear people who ordered back in January 2020. But the sooner you order Scammer, the sooner you'll get it because I'm still doing it in chronological order. So yeah, the sooner you order, the sooner it will arrive is an absolute fact, I can say. I hope you enjoy as it gets out there hearing from people. Um, I know that's like the most rewarding part of putting so much work into something is getting to hear its reception. I appreciate you letting me be honest about mine because if you're a person that goes there so i figured you were a person that was willing to go there um i appreciate you appreciating my book oh yeah absolutely i feel grateful i didn't have to wait because i was like how do i get my hands on this book (laughs) (laughs) um all right caroline well i hope you have a great day and uh, i'll let you know when this comes out thank you so much i can't wait Thank you guys for listening. I hope that at the very least that was interesting, entertaining. Yeah, there was a lot there. I don't even know. <laughs> I'm going to take a nap now. Um, I just don't even know where to begin, but we're ending. For me, if I were you, this would have been a frustrating listening experience because there are 25 million times I wanted to like interject and follow up on things. But it, I, I was just trying to keep up. I still like fundamentally disagree with her response to sharing the sexual assault story. And I think there are some things you keep to yourself. And I think that if that were something she wanted to responsibly explore in a way that actually made sense to her mission, to the book's mission, and that she was kind of trying to argue for, like, that would be one thing. I still would have recommended to word it very differently. But in arguing that it was both to help people with their sexual identity And that she would take it to the grave if Natalie hadn't, like, screwed her over first, hadn't revealed information about her first. I was like, well, that negates your point. This That makes this revenge. That makes this an exploitative plot point at the expense of somebody else's pain and private story. And that, I don't know, that to me is what is just vile. And that's what I meant about feeling distracted. Like, I cannot get behind or understand that logic and it's hard in the because i feel so badly about so many things that she's been through i think it's really shitty that her you know suicidal ideations were included in that cut article that expose as a punchline like that is unequivocally not okay there's so much about the situation that was unfair to her too so we ended up glossing over a lot of her pain that i wish we could have gone into that i am empathetic to But I didn't think it was fair to bring up all of those things in defense of something that I found pretty indefensible. Like I said, it really affected my experience as a reader and in trusting the narrator. And that's kind of why I positioned it that way. I was like, I can't, I know that I in this moment cannot, if this is about your anger toward Natalie, I can't fix that in this moment. I know you care about your work. I know you care about your writing. And I know you care about the reader experience. And as a reader, this, this, this will isolate some readers. And I just wanted to be honest about that because it did for me and it changed how I felt about the book. And, um, but I gather through press that like not everybody felt that way. So I have to share my experience, but caveat that that might not be yours. And I think later on, I kind of offended her when I talk about there being a theme of um, not thinking the rules apply to her. But like, that's kind of what I was gathering. The book is kind of this romanticizing of a lot of 
irresponsibility and a desire to pursue this idea of a of a character uh, at all costs. And this character might make great art, but does it make for a decent human? I don't know. But she also seems to not actually care about that as much as the art she's making and the character she's writing for herself. So it's very interesting, but it's very confusing at times. So yeah, I, I genuinely appreciate her coming on. We had very pleasant interactions and I found so much of her story to be fascinating. Having just done that conversation alone, I'm like, I need somebody to talk to about this. But I do need to end the podcast. I I will let you go. I kind of dropped this episode without... Normally, I say, like, the guest is and ask, see if you have questions. But this kind of came out of nowhere since it was put together quickly. So maybe on patreon.com slash be there in five, I'll... When this airs, I'll put um in the... I'll do a post being... Just, like, get people's comments. Because I am curious to hear your feedback. Maybe we'll do a post-mortem chat. Anyway, I hope you'll come back to the podcast if you're new here. If you've been here a while, we have some fun stuff coming up this summer. I have a really a fun guest that's going to review the Speak Now Taylor's version with me, which I'm very excited about, uh, among other uh, things we've got in store. So if you want to rate and review five stars, it's incredibly helpful whether you just press the stars on Spotify or Apple. I'm an independent show that's not backed by network on purpose and uh, just helps keep me afloat and has for five years and you guys are so wonderful everything you do matters from sharing on your instagram tagging me at kate kennedy at be there in five and if you want to pre-order my book one in a millennial you can do so the link in the show notes or in my instagram bio at kate kennedy and i don't know self-promo over but this past the past few days has been a mason jarring experience if you will and um yeah i just (laughs) looking forward to uh staring at a wall this weekend I hope you have a great day. I hope you have a great week. Come back next week. Love you so much. Thank you for the privilege of your time. As always, let me know your thoughts and I'll let you know mine. I'll be there in five. I swear. <laughs>